So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel 3. And to get us a little bit of a summary of where we are, we're going to jump into the beginning of the story, but I'm going to give you some backstory in the first seven, seven verses. You have this king, Nebuchadnezzar. We've been learning about him the last two weeks. He built a 90-foot golden statue, and he orders all of his officials to bow down to them and bow down to it. And he says, if you don't, you're going to be thrown into this human-sized furnace, right? Well, the music plays, and everyone bows down, except for three people. And that's what causes this stir. And that's where we pick up in the story right now. So in verse 8, it says, Therefore, at that certain time, Chaldeans came forward, and they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to, the king, to king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these Chaldeans, they're probably jealous possibly due to their unbelief in Yahweh or even their immediate, uh, looking at these three Jews, their, their, their immediate rise in leadership. And here they come to the king and they want to get in good graces with him or something by snitching out the, the three guys. And they say, hey, did you see those guys over there? Well, the crowd was familiar with the penalty that was going to happen. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 22 tells us that, that Zedekiah and Ahab, they were thrown into a furnace by Nebuchadnezzar as well. So people were familiar. This is a terrible way to go. This would scare anybody into obedience, even if they didn't want to actually believe in this statue. They would just go through the motions. Now, can you recall anything that you've learned the last two weeks that would help you know why these men could display such such confidence in their faith. Well, if you've been listening and putting the pieces together, you would know they've already walked through smaller tests. The first week, we looked at how they went to Babylon, and they said, listen, we just want to drink water and eat veggies, and they watched how God provided and sustained and strengthened them. A little later, they saw God reveal the king's dream, which rescued them from the death penalty. So this isn't their first rodeo with God's faithfulness. Here they stand with another moment. And the story continues in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You know, the same king had experienced Yahweh's power when the dream was revealed. And if you just recall, like in your own paper Bibles, you could probably look on the same page, the expression and the praise that Nebuchadnezzar gave to God because the dream had been interpreted and his heart had that peace because he was so disturbed by the dream and he saw God provide in this way. Well, 
maybe he believes that Yahweh can reveal dreams, but can he protect humans out of this furnace? Well, in the king's opinion, no way. Impossible. What God can do this? Who is the God? You know, rich and powerful and successful people, they tend to forget that there is a creator who rules the universe, and they are only as powerful as God gives them the right to be. Well, here we have verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They answered and they said this to the king. This is one of those passages, these next two verses. This is what you uh, highlight in like bright pink in your Bible if you have that. It's a famous response. They answered to the king. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we deliver is able to, or the, the, our God whom, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, these men, they knew, and they had confidence that God was able to deliver them. But they were not sure if he would. They understood that God does not always choose miraculous intervention in every circumstance. In the fourth century, uh, the theologian Jerome, he wrote this, they indicate that it will not be a matter of God's inability, but rather his sovereign will if they do perish. This verse, this section of Daniel leads to a whole nother dynamic, and I want to take a moment to talk through it. It's this quandary that every Christian faces multiple times in our lives. Why does God intervene sometimes, but not all times? We live in a fallen world. We know trials build character among other things. Romans 5 teaches us that as well, but common sense does as well. But we also know that God calls us to pray to him, and he often answers prayer, and sometimes he even answers it better than we ask. Our God is a good God. But sometimes God does not answer it in the way we pray it. Being a follower of Christ does not guarantee we will avoid hardship or suffering or death. Far from it. But if God can rescue, why does he not sometimes? You ever ask yourself that? I come face to face with that question frequently. My, my mind's asking that question actually uh, this weekend. Two days ago, a pastor friend of mine, he buried his wife. He's about my age with three kids, just like me. He lives an hour north of here and he pastors a church in a small town his wife passed away last week from cancer. We're in the same pastoral network, same passions for ministry and family. But my wife's here and his wife's in heaven. Uh, we get to go on dates, but my friend Peter is finding himself asking and stating verses like Job thirteen fifteen: Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. You know, we, we all encounter times when God acts in mysterious ways. And they're ways that perhaps appears unloving or unkind or unfair. And it is in those moments we must experience the full reliance upon our Savior because he never leaves our side. Our cry can be alone yet not alone, for Christ is with me. And so we remember we are closest to Christ and Christ is closest to us when we are in the trial. And there seems to be this cause and effect in our faith time and time again. 
the greater the trial, the closer, uh, the closer our intimacy with Christ. Over the years, I've heard statements from you and other Christians that are similar to the, these, these types of statements. The greatest satisfaction I've had with Christ occurred during a prolonged fast. Or the greatest closeness I've had with Christ occurred during aloneness. Or the greatest purpose I've had with Christ occurred when I wanted to end my life. Or the greatest love I've had with Christ occurred when I lost those whom my heart loved. You do not experience the fullness of Christ in the comfort of our home or of our classroom, but in the laboring and the persecution and the suffering at the hands of others or the enemy or what this fallen world we live in tends to give us. And in those times of trial and loss, we must embrace the mindset that these young men had. It's this, God is in control and he alone I will serve no matter the consequences. So that's what these men stood up against. And they said, hey, listen, God will do what he's going to do. But we're not going to bow. Well, let's see how they respond. First of all, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Was he like, you know, I applaud your, your conviction. No, he's a hothead. So verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven more or seven times more than it was usually heated, which is probably an idiom just for as hot as it can possibly do, right? Max capacity. Verse 20, he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire even killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, again saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, in this moment, you'd expect it to be, and they exploded in flames. You know, they burnt up. It was so hot, just disintegrated, or whatever the term would be, for fire, and like takes you out. Well, verse 24 continues. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king. And he answered, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. In this moment, you have this miraculous protection of the three men, not only by preserving their life, but everything, their clothes and the hair on their head. You know how easily that would burn. They are clearly Good, protected. This is a miraculous moment that is actually one of those accounts that makes some people uh, wonder, is Scripture legend or is it true or not? Well, we have accounts like this throughout the rest of church history at times too. Several from those who are missionaries in different places. There's, there's several that actually are... Um, Debunked, well, quote unquote debunked, unlike Snopes.com and stuff, because they're said to be just clearly, like the, the phrase is, well, obviously this isn't true. I'm like, well, obvious in what way? The person says it's true because they were there. And you're just saying, well, obviously it's not true. It's really interesting how their statements are like that. Let me read for you one of these accounts. It's by Catherine Davis. She wrote about mission work in the Philippines in the 1950s. And she has this book called The Spirits of Mindoro. Now, I've read several different accounts like this. I, have, I, I wasn't able to get this book because it it's little in print, so I, can't, I didn't read this, but I read of this that was in there. So if you do have the book, I'd love to see it. But she describes another woman who is sleeping alone in her house one night here in this island of Mindoro. 
when she heard men outside talking about killing her. And she prayed for protection, and the men suddenly grew quiet, and they ran away. Well, the next day, a woman from the village said that the men did not carry out their plans because of two large people dressed in white who were standing on each side of the path of the house. Whether it's this story or multiple others that I could show you, I love how all of them describe a similar pattern, and that is God's protection. There's, this, there's a biography I worked through this week, and in it, the, the one who wrote it, it's an autobiography and uh, from 130 years ago, and he writes about his work uh, sort of in that area of the Pacific Ocean, and he couples it with just a few chapters before his missionary friends, his partners in ministry, they were murdered by the cannibals who were there. And then a few chapters later, he and another person, they are protected in a matter in which they would have, they normally would have died. But then this massive gushing wind pushed out the fire that the men had set, um, like the, the enemy had, um, had set up. And uh, you read that account and it helps to just have such a balance of just recognizing sometimes God intervenes and sometimes he doesn't. We don't blindly just say that it always happens, but there are moments where God does intervene. And the thought that it happens in Daniel or today is completely legitimate. Well, here we see this is the occurrence. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is celebrating now, right? He's, he's such, he's such a... a Impulsive highs and lows. He must have been quite the treat to be married to <laughs> for those who were in that kingdom. Verse 26 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, right? They walk out. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors, right? All those who had bowed down to the, to the, uh, the giant idol, well, they gathered together and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their, clo their cloaks had not, uh, were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Right, then that's a great praise. Now, the, now his statements kind of take a turn, and you're like, whoa, that was extreme. He says, therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. And I was like, oh, all right, all right, well, you don't have to do that, but you know, whatever. <laughs> For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon, right? They were already promoted uh, before from the dream that was interpreted, and possibly the Chaldeans at the beginning of the story were jealous about that. Well, now there is provision, and they're promoted again, right? It's like, oh, wow, like these, these Chaldeans or whoever it was that was accusing these guys, they just can't get the upper hand on these guys. So we have it right here. This is the famous story of God's protection from the fiery furnace. And it draws out questions that we find ourselves asking on a regular basis. Is God with me? Will God really protect me? Can I trust God? No matter what circumstance you are in, and it looks different across the board, and I wish this was about a three-hour like banquet time where we could have story after story and share this because it's so important to have... Um, I don't know, your personal take on 
and experience with this, but the answer is yes, a resounding yes. You can fully lean and trust God. Even when we are called to difficult circumstances, and even if that means our earthly life may end. And so to, to help us like apply this and work through this and strengthen our faith with this story, let's talk through this question. How do we know when to stand up and when to bow down? Or, or even this, how do we build unwavering conviction and how do we build godly wisdom? As I said at the very beginning, there are situations when we should stand up. There are situations when possibly we should bow down. There are situations where some people who are mature and godly feel like they need to stand up and others are, feel the total peace to bow down. And it can be kind of confusing and it's a mixed bag in different ways. So let's talk through this a little bit. How do we know which is which? How do we know what to do and when to do it? Let me provide you some, some basic guidelines to building unwavering conviction and godly wisdom. So we'll start off with some unwavering conviction. We're gonna look at the example of the three men from the story and then apply that into this uh, application for us. So first of all, we wanna be humble. So step one, be humble. These guys were not the center of their universe. God was. And likewise, we must recognize that God is the author and the maker of all, not you and not me. Therefore, his word stands as the truth and we must align ourselves with it. If man is truth or if culture is truth or if academia is truth, then those standards are always changing and they're always developing. But when God's word is truth, our mindset prepares us to accept what he says. If, he's, if he says that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, then it is, right? Like, we, it doesn't really matter what we feel about that statement or what our opinion is on that statement. If God's word says Jesus is God, then he is. If, God were, if God's word says that a certain sin is a sin, and then it is. Or if something is not a sin, then it's not. We must be humble to get in line with God's word. So that's the first one. It, it, it deeply involves your heart having a posture of humility before God. Secondly, you, you must know God's word. These guys were well-versed in scripture, at least the scripture they would have had at the time. We have a fuller book because of the New Testament and Jesus you know, who came after this period. And likewise, we have to read scripture. We have to study it. We have to be proficient in it. Over time, our conviction builds because we discover God's heart on particular matters. Now, Ephesians 6 describes Scripture as the sword of the Spirit. Unfortunately, we don't know really how to yield, uh, wield, wield the sword. Yeah, not yield it, but wield it, right? We tend to be mm, incompetent in using this wonderful weapon of warfare that God has given us. So let's learn it, and that begins with reading it. I know several people say, well, I just want to know the deeper things, or like, it's like, you know what? You're not even reading the Bible. How about you just start with reading things rather than getting into complicated things that really uh, may not have any bearing on one way or another with your daily life. And then the third step with this, so again, the first is to be humble. Second is to know God's word. Thirdly, be faithful one moment at a time. The guys in this story, their first test was not the fiery furnace. But they had many other tests, including unseen ones and ones that were unknown to us. Likewise, we must be faithful with the small test that God brings us. And step by step, we build this. I've also learned when it comes to these tests, if we don't pass it the first time, usually God brings it back around. So if, if literally if this was um, steps, maybe up to the second floor, 
Well, if you don't know how to get to step one, you don't get to just jump it. You got to keep repeating that time and time again. And it might take years before you think, you know, I'm finally going to I'm going to trust God with this step. And it happens time and time again in our lives. So let me recap that real quick. I think those are good three steps are the basics. Get humble, know God's word, and be faithful one moment at a time. If you begin applying those things, you'll find yourself building unwavering conviction on matters that God cares about. Secondly is how to apply it. Having godly wisdom, knowing when to stand up and when to sit down. And, and this, is, um, this is just as important as the, as the first. And so how do we build wisdom? I've got three basic steps for us, again, from the lives of these guys. This is, uh, this is easily like two sermons. I'm going to pack it into about two minutes. So just listen, and we can go from there. And I might, I might make it an, a part two next week. We'll see. And so the first step is this. You ask uh, this question. Is this issue addressed in Scripture? The issue or the situation that you're faced with... Sorry. Sorry. I've got a lot in my head right now. With my nose. All right. As a listener, I know it's really annoying, so I'm trying to be careful there. Uh, is this issue addressed in Scripture? For these guys, they were explicitly told by God in the first two of the Ten Commandments these statements. You shall have no other gods before me, and you must not make for yourself any graven image. So when there's a giant 90-foot statue made of gold, yeah, they know that's totally out of bounds. Like, hey, you should bow to that. No, we're not going to bow to that. In fact, listen to this. Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments, it expounds on that second one. It says this in, in verse 5. You, sh you must not bow down to them or worship them. Like, I mean, it's really clear cut. He continues, God says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the, in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Right? So for them, they're like, well, this is really obvious, and it has generational consequences, so let us not bow down. That, that was why they could draw that line so easily. It wasn't, uh, which is crazy, because of that same sort of situation, if that was today, and I'm not going to get into it too much, but if you were to have that, you'd have so many people that say, yeah, I just don't know if that's actually what it says. It's like, really? I mean, it's talking about an actual graven image, and it's talking about bowing down to it, and you can still justify it. People justify their behavior all day long. And, and that's one reason you have to have this wisdom. But in this case, they knew it. It was right, very clear. Similar for us today. We look at Scripture, which includes the Old and the New Testament. Now, our society as a whole, and in the church, but definitely within culture, because you'll hear it in the news and other places, they're incredibly ignorant of what Scripture actually says. Most things really aren't that complicated. Most things have plain explanations, or at least reasonable explanations, across the board. And the problem isn't so much that we don't know what it says, but that we don't like what it says. And so the decision... If it is addressed in Scripture as a hardline issue, when that happens, the answer is to submit to whatever the instruction is in Scripture, right? So that's the first standard, the first question there. Is this issue addressed in Scripture? Secondly, and this is where you start to have the gray area, does Scripture convey this as an issue of Christian liberty? In other words, some people would feel conviction about it and others wouldn't feel conviction about it. For instance, if you recall in Daniel chapter 1, these same men could not enjoy the royal meat or the wine without violating God's law. 
But in the New Testament, Christ has fulfilled the law. So Peter, the apostle Peter, he, he actually has a dream in Acts 10 that all food can be eaten. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul, the apostle Paul, he writes about this whole dynamic. He says, you know, to new Greek believers that if they want to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, that's fine. He's like, because it's just food. But if it causes somebody else to stumble, don't eat it because that would be causing them to sin. And there in, in that moment, you have these descriptions of how you can have uh, the same action and for one person, it could violate their walk with the Lord and for, us, for another person, it may not. Again, this is not one of those uh, that first category of hardline issues, clear, obvious, there's a standard, do not cross the standard. We're talking the second area. And that's what most of us walk in day in and day out. And that's where there tends to be a lot of judgmentalism, a lot of uh, messiness, and what I call real church. And so in, in, within this, uh, one of the ways that I see that distinction play out and how you can kind of know what looks like Christian liberty or, liberty or not, one of the best ways is going on mission trips. When you, when you have cross-cultural interactions with Christians and you see how they have total like freedom in an area, and you're like, wait, I thought that was wrong. Wait, like what? You've grown up learning that that, that whole dynamic was fine or vice versa. It can kind of reveal to you how we must walk in certain ways that are obedient to our uh, to our conscience slash the Holy Spirit at work within us. And we must not cause a weaker Christian to stumble with our behavior. So if you're faced with an issue that is not against God's clear commands for Christian living and the Holy Spirit doesn't tug on your heart that it is crossing into sin or causing someone to sin, then we have the freedom and the liberty to in, in, engage that. Oppositely, if you're faced with an issue and it violates your conscience, then you don't participate. And if someone else's participation is literally causing you to stumble, then we talk to them, right? Then you talk to them. So, so that's the second area here. Uh, again, does Scripture convey this as an issue of Christian liberty? And then the last question to ask, and, and this is wisdom. And again, wisdom is, I don't want to get in definitions here. I'm going to get wrong with how I describe this, but let me just give it a shot impromptuly. Knowledge is a little bit more of the, the, this is what it says, and wisdom is, yeah, but how do you apply it? Because requ requiring wisdom is, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And that's, the, that's where there's these w wiggle room moments. The third area in question I would ask is, what do other mature Christians say about that issue? The three men, they knew their heritage of other men and women who stood strong in the face of peer pressure and persecution. They had a whole list of people who have faced similar situations and stood up with this, specifically Moses, the one who wrote the commandments, I mean, from God, but he wrote these out, and they were saying, this is what it says, let us obey that. Well, likewise, we can learn from the examples of others, from mature Christians in your life, you know, ones you can talk to, to other prominent Christians in the last 2,000 years as a church. You find yourself asking, what is their particular take on that matter? You should get prayerful and thoughtful opinions on that situation, particularly if it's really vexing you, if you're really unsure what to do. What do others say on this? If you're faced with an issue and it doesn't violate your conscience, but over the last 2,000 years, every single Christian that is mature and godly and prominent in all the right ways thinks this, but you think, yeah, but what about this? But I know, I know everyone thinks, you know, if everyone's thinking this uh, the certain way, but you're not, 
uh, you should probably yield to the reasoning and the wisdom and the path and the uh, longevity of Christian uh, reputation and, uh, and victory in their walk with the Lord. Like, yield to that, not this thinking of you'll be the Christian unicorn who discovers a new way and a, um, a fresh way and a way that everybody has missed for 2,000 years. Or even, even if you weren't to back it up for 2,000, say the last... Um, well, just your own generation. If everyone's thinking one way, it's rare that you're going to be the Martin Luther. You know, it's just not going to, it's not going to happen. Uh, that's, that's, uh, you're better, better off winning the lottery or becoming a professional athlete before you're going to come up with a new theological strain that is going to revolutionize the church in a way that honors God. So with that said, this is the story that we have in Daniel 3. Uh, let me recap for you real quick those, those last questions, because this is where this breaks down. So, so, the, so to build unwavering conviction, you want to be humble, you want to know God's word, you want to be faithful one moment at a time. And then to build wisdom, ask questions like this, is this issue addressed in Scripture? Does Scripture convey this as an issue of Christian liberty? And then lastly, what do other mature Christians say about that issue? These are basic standards to get you started. These are, these are questions and ideas just to kind of get the ball rolling there. Um, Maddie, you and the team, you guys can come on up here, uh, you and Annie. As, as you think through this, if this is evoking in you uh, deeper questions, you're like, wow, I really want to learn more on this, particularly like um, these last matters. You may want to look at the sermon series from last year, last May, and then June, we looked at the book of Galatians. And so I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. So May 23rd and then June 13th, I did a two-part series there on Christian liberty. There's that two-week gap because I had COVID during that time. So if you're wondering, what was that about? Well, that's what that is. So May 23rd and June 13th, we looked at chapter 5 of Galatians, and we talked through how to understand some of the, um, the wisdom of living out our faith when a whole group of people think one way, but another godly group of people think another way, and how to navigate through that. And then also, I'm going to prayerfully consider making this a two-part sermon because a topic we didn't address, which Maddie and, and everyone else who's in uh, uh, military and uh, Americans, here it is this weekend, of all the weekends, right? If you didn't notice, these guys defied the king's orders. And today we'd say, hey, isn't that a violation of Romans 13? Doesn't Romans 13 say submit to your authority? Well, these guys didn't. Um, and it's like, well, you know, whether it's these guys or whether it's declaring independence, well, why is that okay at times and when is it not? So it's tempting to teach on that. I really wanted to make that today because the time was perfect. I was waiting for that for two years. I know, I know. But um, it wasn't going to work because God said talk on the other stuff that is a little more real life and a little less um, historical theory and stuff like that. So with that said, um, let me pray for us.